put us in your shoes a little bit of what it's like to live in a place where, uh, where faith is costly. About two or three weeks ago, uh, one disciple of ours was uh, actually put on trial for becoming a Christian and was sentenced to hanging. Uh, the normal experience for uh, believers is to be kidnapped, uh, beaten, tortured, uh, in attempt to make them recant their new faith. I'm, I'm curious uh, what that does for your faith. It has taught me in a very real way that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And I think God is doing some really big things right now around us, uh, not because it's we have some great strategy. In fact, we never intended to go start a school. Uh, we get to be on the front row seat to see what God is doing. Give us some, some stories of where God has shown up. One lady we call Tessain uh, had a dream uh, in the night of Jesus and woke up that next morning and said, I want to follow Jesus. And never had a missionary, never had a Bible. This was She just knew the dream. Was that unique or is that, do you hear that more than once? Oh, more than once. Across the Arab world, this is a normal way uh, that people are coming to faith. Meeting Jesus in a dream. Yes. Wow. Wow. Those that have been coming to Chapel Street for a while know that this is a, a, an Advent tradition that we have of supporting different global workers doing various things. And we've heard that the goal of, of 500,000 mm -hmm. will go towards this Hope School. Talk about the impact. If we were to meet that goal, talk about the impact you think it would have for the school, for the community, for the city. Just kind of tell us what you think could happen were all of this to, to take place. Yeah, very simply, uh, we have an 86,000 square foot facility that's brand new, but the insides are not finished. So we're using about 20% of the square footage that has been outfitted as classrooms. We are maxed out with 200 students, uh, but we have a plan that we could have 1,500 students. Wow. And so that amount would be able to help us outfit the entire building uh, in order to go from 200 to 1,500 students. This sounds like it would just be a game changer in that community, would it's it a not? It's a total game changer. Yeah. And it's nothing like it in, uh, we're in a city of millions of people. Yeah. There's nothing like it. In fact, really over the past decade, uh, due to conflict in the country, there has not been a full year of education. Is there anything else you, you wish our church to know? Any last words you want to leave us with? Yeah, just to be uh, very clear, you know, we've talked about how Chapel Streeters can get involved. Uh, obviously, the first one is uh, financially. And I would just encourage, I mentioned uh, <clears throat> this is an opportunity to stretch your faith. I remember when Carrie and I first decided we're going to go. We left our house uh, for a weekend, and we actually had people that do estate sales come in and like put price tags on all the things we owned. And uh, we came back, we approved the prices, left another weekend, and then it was just all gone. And, and something that we have learned in doing this is as we take sacrificial steps of faith, uh, our faith grows, and we see God showing up in huge ways. And so as Chapel Streeters are thinking about how can they partner with us, uh, we have never gone wrong by taking faith steps uh, sacrificial faith steps, and then seeing how God shows up.
I had the chance uh, this past week on th- uh, Friday morning to spend about an hour uh, with Doug and a couple of the other pastors and just hear more of his story and what's happening right now uh, where they're serving in Africa. And I, I came away just convinced that God is doing something really almost unimaginable in that part of the world. Um, they live in a city of millions, he said, and they only know of 40 other followers of Jesus in the entire city, in fact, maybe even in the entire country that they know of for sure because it's so dangerous. And yet their school is going to be, could be reaching 1,500 children and their families uh, and have permission from the local Muslim authorities to be doing that. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. So uh, we are trying to raise uh, a, a, a chunk of $500,000 as a church family this month. Uh, to help them do that. And whatever we are able to raise, we're going to give to them. So if you want to participate, you can do so uh, on the church app, or you can do it electronically, or you can just simply write in the check either STW for Serve the World or Hope School, and we will see how far we can get in that project. And by the way, if you want to hear more of that interview, uh, there's a a bonus episode of our podcast, which is called the For Where You Are podcast. Uh, And there's 45 minutes of an interview uh, where he talks much more in depth about what's happening uh, right now in real time in that part of the world. So uh, go listen to that if you have a chance. Well, as uh, many of you know, (coughs) excuse me, I'm coughing a bit this morning. (coughs) Uh, My father, who went to be with the Lord just this past June, uh, was a pastor for some 60 years. But my dad also had a, a really good sense of humor. He loved to laugh. He loved to joke around. Although at times his idea of what was funny uh, could be a little uh, different. For example, when my mother uh, discovered she was pregnant with my youngest brother, um, my, I was 11 years old, and my dad decided it, would be, decided it would be fun not to tell his mother, my grandma Coffee, that um, my mom was expecting again. Uh, he decided it would be fun to wait all the way until the baby was born and then surprise her with that news. Th- this is his, his own mother, right? My dad thought that this would be funny, so he waited. He didn't breathe a word to it of it for nine months. Um, and then, if that wasn't enough, when the baby was finally born, this is how he announced to his mother, my grandma, uh, that she had another grandchild. He called his mom on the phone, said, hi, mom. She said, hi, Button. That was his nickname with her. Hi, Button. How are y'all doing? Well, okay, mom, uh, except we had to take Joan to the hospital. The mother said, the hospital? Oh, my goodness. What happened? And he said, well, um, she had to have a growth removed. <laughs> she said, a growth? Oh, my goodness. Is everything okay? Well, yeah, mom, uh, but the growth weighed over eight pounds. Eight pounds. Oh, my. Oh, my. What happened? But it's okay, mom. She's fine. In fact, the growth was so cute, my dad said, we decided to name it and bring it home. Long silence. My grandma said, Roland, what are you trying to tell me? And then he finally told her. That was my dad's idea of a fun announcement, right? So you got to know where I come from. Um, Well, today we look at another birth announcement, maybe even stranger than that one. We're in a series called The Spirit of Christmas, looking, of course, at the role of the Holy Spirit in this great nativity narrative we have in the New Testament. In part one, a couple of weeks ago, we began by looking back at the prophet Isaiah, uh, who prophesied some 700 years before Jesus was born that one would come who would be like a shoot from the stump of Jesse, on whom the Spirit of God would rest in great power and wisdom, who would come to judge with righteousness and faithfulness, talking about the Messiah, prophesying about the Messiah. 
Then last week we saw the birth of John the Baptist and how he was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and how the Spirit enabled his parents in their old age, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, to understand the purpose of the child that would be born to them. Now today we continue in Luke chapter 1 with what theologians call the Annunciation or the Announcement. So let me read this for you. We're in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. I'll make some comments along the way. Luke writes, In the sixth month, now this most likely refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin. And if you look up that word in ancient Greek, it simply means a young woman who's beyond puberty but not yet married, who's not had relations with a man. It's very clear what the word means. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, this part of the Christmas story, called the Annunciation or the Announcement of the Incarnation of God, is the subject of some of the world's most famous paintings. And maybe you're an art historian, maybe you're not, but I want to show you, show you just a few uh, this morning. Uh, an artist named Caravaggio in 1608 painted this. It's a little bit dark, which was his style, but it captures something of the mystery of, of Gabriel sort of stooping down from heaven to bless Mary. And then Rembrandt in 1650 painted this, uh, sort of a classic Renaissance style, angel in a white robe with wings, uh, blessing Mary with uh, this news. And then this is maybe my favorite, a guy named Henry Tanner in 1898. And here he portrays Gabriel as this, as this shimmering light uh, speaking to Mary. And I like that. It just catches some of the mystery again of the announcement. Uh, and I want to point out a couple things before we jump back into the text. I want you to notice the detail that Luke's already given us in this account. Uh, he says, in the sixth month. He doesn't say once upon a time, right, like a lot of stories start, but a specific time. He says the angel Gabriel, not just some angel, but a specific angel. He says, to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, a specific place, to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Now, all these little details matter because Luke is going to great lengths to anchor his story in real time, real places, and real people because he wants us to know, he wants all of history to know that this story he's telling is not religious mythology. This story is anchored in real flesh and blood history. That was Luke's point, his purpose. And speaking to Gabriel, did you know that Gabriel only shows up by name four times in the entire Bible? Twice in the book of Daniel and twice in Luke chapter 1. Once when he appeared to Zechariah uh, to tell him he was going to have a son, his wife would have a son in her old age, where he announced that he was Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And then later here in uh, chapter 1, six months later in Jerusalem, when he, when he, in Nazareth, when he announces to um, Mary. So this announcement is a big deal. Gabriel is sent to give this announcement. And notice that when Gabriel comes to give the announcement, God sends him not to Rome, which would have been the political capital of the world, not to uh, Athens, which was the cultural center of the world, not to Jerusalem, which is the religious center of Israel, but to an out-of-the-way, insignificant, working-class village called Nazareth, to a Jewish, barely teenage girl who has no status in her own culture, let alone in the Roman Empire. Interesting. 
Luke tells us that Gabriel comes to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, we'll talk about the virgin part of this in just a bit. But to be betrothed was a little bit like being engaged in our culture, but, but even so much different. In that culture, marriages were typically arranged by parents, sometimes when kids were very, very young. Um, and the betrothal time was a binding agreement between families. Not just between a, a man and a woman, but between families. And it was legally binding. It could only be dissolved through a divorce, even though the man and the woman had not lived together and, had not had, and the marriage had not been consummated. And the average age for betrothal in that culture at that time was around 13 years for a young girl. So Mary is somewhere around 13 years old, maybe 14 years old. And this is why Luke makes a point of telling us that she is a virgin. Now, the betrothal period would last about a year, during which time the bridegroom would spend that time building a home for his bride-to-be, usually often attached to his father's home. The bride would spend that year just preparing, getting herself ready and waiting. Then after about a year of betrothal and preparation, uh, the celebration of the wedding feast would happen. That was like a week-long celebration for a whole town. And the bride would adorn herself, prepare herself for her husband. And then with great fanfare, like a parade, the groom would go and uh, go to his, his bride, take her back to the home he had prepared, and there they would celebrate, consummate the marriage, and the wedding feast would begin. Now, in that we see both the fulfillment of ancient prophecy, uh, because Isaiah has said the virgin will be with child, but we also see this beautiful picture of how Jesus would later talk about his relationship to us his church. Remember in John 14, Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back to take you to be with me where I am. And then in Revelation 19, we, we see a pointing to the second advent when Jesus will come again, when it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And that's us. So in this little small part of the story, the betrothal, we see the beautiful picture of what God has been planning all the way along in his redemptive history for those of us who call ourselves by his name. We are the bride of Christ. So now I want to continue in verse 28. And he, Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. That's an understatement. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And actually, this time Luke uses a different phrase for virgin, Literally, it says, since I know not a man. As if, as if Luke wants us to, to us to make sure we understand Mary's situation. Verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So the first thing we see, and this is a familiar story, but the first thing we see is what I just call the announcement 
of the angel, the announcement. As many of you might know, um, my wife and I had two grandchildren born into our family this year, a granddaughter, Eden, and that, that's her face every time she sees her Papa B. <laughs> and uh, we had a grandson named, uh, born to our older son, Jordan, and his wife. His name is Kish. Uh, that's his thoughtful look. Um, his name comes from 1 Samuel chapter 9. The father of King Saul was named Kish and called, was called a, man of, a, mighty, a mighty man of valor. So uh, each couple uh, announced their um, coming birth in different ways. Uh, Mike and Jana, who had uh, the little girl, Eden, they announced it to us by coming to our house one afternoon in this, uh, earlier this year, and their older daughter, Emery, who's two, was wearing a T-shirt that just said Big Sister on it. That was a subtle way they announced So we saw that, we got the message, and so we celebrated. But Jordan and his wife, Hanukkah, did it a different way. They shared their good news, news with us after dinner one night when they were serving us coffee and dessert. And uh, they had, with the dessert, and coffee came, were spoons, little smaller than this. And on the bowl of the spoon, uh, they had written, we're having a baby. Um, but it was small. The spoon was like a small little stirring spoon. And when my wife picked up the spoon, she used it to stir her coffee and never noticed the little tiny message on it. And they had to keep prompting us, do you need a spoon? Do you need a spoon with that? Do you need a spoon? And, and finally, when she saw it, you know, there, were, there, was, there was laughter and screaming and crying and tears and and, then, and she was pretty happy, too, uh, to get that message. <laughs> Verse 28, we see, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, the angel says two things to this young woman. First, he says, You have found favor with God. And actually, Gabriel says this twice. He says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I want to take a look at that word favor. In ancient Greek, the word is charis, which is often in the New Testament translated as grace or gift. It's the unmerited, undeserved favor of God who extends himself in kindness and love toward the people he has made. It's the very same word the Apostle Paul uses, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2 when he writes, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace, the same word, translated favor, you have been saved. Later in verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then in 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul also writes, And he saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Same word. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So, question, what is grace? What is favor? It's the gift of God. It's what the Bible says over and over again in the New Testament. Who is the author? Who is the creator? Who is the originator of grace? God. It belongs to him. And where do we see the perfect expression of God's grace? In Christ himself. From the beginning of time, Paul writes. So when Gabriel says, Greetings, O favored one, and you have found favor with God, what is he saying about Mary? 
Now, I'm going to deal with two elephants in the room today. You probably didn't even notice as you walked in. Uh, Here's the first elephant in the room. What about Mary? In Roman Catholic tradition, you may be aware that this greeting of Gabriel has been turned into a prayer to Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And in Catholic theology, Mary has become one who has not only received grace from God, but can also dispense or bestow grace on others. This is the source of what we would call the veneration of Mary. And again, in Catholic theology, it extends even to seeing Mary as one who answers prayer and forgives sin. Mary is regarded as co-mediatrix with Jesus, that is, co-mediator with Jesus between God and us, which is not only in direct conflict with God's Word, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, but it's also contributed to the 500-year schism between the Roman tradition and Protestantism. Now, the issue hangs on the understanding of one compound word in one verse in the passage we read today. In ancient Greek, it's the word kekaritamene. I think I said that right. Which simply means one who is favored with grace. So the meaning is not that Mary is full of grace in herself, but rather God is full of grace and has freely bestowed his grace as his choice on this young woman, Mary. And we can see that Mary herself even understood this. And we heard it, first we heard it today in the reading for the Advent candle, but it's called the Magnificat. Later in Luke chapter 1, we read in verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Only people who see themselves as sinful can regard God as their Savior. And this matters because even though God is extending his grace, his favor to Mary in a highly unusual way, this same favor, the same grace is offered to us today through the person and work of the child promised to Mary, Jesus Christ. The second thing Gabriel says to Mary is absolutely overwhelming. And that's a complete understatement. Verse 31, and behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. If you're counting there, Gabriel makes six statements, each seemingly more astonishing and more overwhelming than the last. He says, you will conceive and bear a son. Mary is a virgin. She's never known a man. Uh, You will give him the name Jesus. That's Yeshua. That means Yahweh saves. He will be great. Now, Mary is a young, insignificant woman in an insignificant town from an insignificant family. But he says, your son will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. That is, Son of Almighty God himself. He will be given the throne of David, meaning that he will be the Messianic king Israel has longed for for centuries. And he will reign forever. Your son will be eternal. Now, Every expectant mother that I know, every expectant father that I know, has dreams for their unborn child. Of course, we pray for health. We pray for um, safety. 
But we also have dreams, right? We dream that maybe, maybe our child will be, will be special. Maybe they'll be, even be gifted in some way. When our first son was born, I, I couldn't help noticing. It just he, it seemed like he had big hands and long fingers. I had nothing to compare that to, but it seemed like he had big hands to me. And I found myself dreaming about maybe those hands one day would, would grip a football or play piano. A little more grip a football than play piano, but that's what I was thinking. <laughs> But imagine standing in a maternity ward window and you're gazing at your newborn son and a total stranger walks up next to you and stands next to you for a minute and then whispers to you, you know, I think your son's going to be great. I'd say, well, thanks. I hope so. But if his next line was, and he will be called son of the most high God, I think I'd try to find ways to slowly back away from that guy, right? You'd probably do the same thing if that happened to you. But what we see here is an overwhelming, unimaginable, incomprehensible statement of the favor of God poured out on a young Jewish girl and through her poured out to us the favor of God. The second thing we see in this story is the power of the Spirit. Power of the Spirit. Um, I've mentioned this before, but I came across this little story years ago. The famous late-night talk show host, Larry King, um, who was famous for interviewing all sorts of uh, celebrities and famous people, was asked by a reporter, uh, if you could interview anyone from human history for any reason, who would you choose and why? And I'm sure the reporter was thinking that King would say something like, you know, Elvis or Abraham Lincoln or Hitler or Julius Caesar. But Larry King's answer was interesting. He said, if he could interview anyone from human history, he would choose to interview Jesus Christ. The reporter was surprised. He said, why Jesus? And he said, I would like to ask Jesus if he was indeed virgin born. Because that, the answer to that question would define history for me. And I think Larry King was right. Because if this story is true, if this part of this story is true, then we have the turning point of all human history. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Got to be the most obvious question in the history of the earth, right? How will this be? Now you might be thinking, how is Mary's question different from Zechariah's question to Gabriel. We saw this last week. Remember when Gabriel announced to Zechariah that his, his wife Elizabeth in her old age was going to have a son? And Zechariah said, how can I be sure? Or literally he said, by, by what can I know this? So Zechariah wanted proof of what the angel had said. And Gabriel saw this as unbelief. And so Zechariah was struck dumb for nine months. He couldn't speak. Mary simply asks, how can this be? In other words, she believes Gabriel. She just wants to know how it could happen. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age and has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now at this point, Mary doesn't know that yet. She does not yet know her, her relative Elizabeth is having a child. Then verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Okay, now we're going to talk about the second elephant in the room. Let's talk about virgin birth. Two questions I want to ask. First, is virgin birth true? Is the virgin birth of Jesus true? 
Now, when people ask this question, usually they're asking on, on the basis of science. They're thinking about what we know from science. And so the claim of virgin birth is nonsensical if you think about it from a scientific perspective. That's simply impossible, doesn't happen. And of course, that's right, that's correct, if you leave God out of the equation. Now, here's how I think about it. Uh, human scientists figured out back in the 1970s um, how to create what was called a test tube baby. You remember, there's a British lady named Louise Brown, born in 1978. And if human beings can figure out how to fertilize an egg in a test tube and then reinsert the fertilized egg into a, a, a mother's womb and the baby can be born without technically having relations between a man and a woman, then why couldn't God figure out a virgin birth? Do we doubt the biotechnology of God? Like one preacher said, if you could get past the first sentence of the Bible, which is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the rest of it is a piece of cake, if you can get by that first. By the way, we're going to deal a whole series on Genesis come first of the year. What we need to see here is the real question is not how could it happen, not the technology of it, not the mechanics of it, but who made it happen. Not how, but who. Because this is what the Holy Spirit does and has always been doing. The Holy Spirit is the power of God to bring new life. On the very first page of the Bible, we see it, the Spirit's role in creation itself. Genesis 1, verse 2, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Jesus later would teach the role of the Holy Spirit in what's called regeneration that is moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. In John chapter 3, in his famous conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul promises the Holy Spirit to all who believe. He writes, in him you also, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the power of God that creates something where there was nothing that creates life where there was no life, that even brings life to that which was dead. So if you are a believer today, if you put your faith in Christ, you have already experienced the same Spirit, the same power, the same Holy Spirit uh, that, was, that, that overshadowed Mary is what drew you to faith. It's the power of the Spirit that allowed you to experience grace and the favor of God. It's the power of the Spirit that moves you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it's the power of the Spirit that allows you to grow. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Only the Holy Spirit grows those things. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that brings forgiveness, reconciliation, healing, to relationships, to families, to marriages. So yes, the virgin birth is true because that's what the Holy Spirit does. Second question, is the virgin birth necessary for our faith as Christians? Is it necessary? 
Why is this rather uncomfortable claim part of the story at all? Could have, couldn't God have done it some other way? Because without the virgin birth, Jesus would have been just another guy. If this story isn't true, Jesus is just another guy. But because Jesus was not the product of just another human relationship, he was not just another guy. Because of the virgin birth, we can now see that God came near. That the eternal creator of all things has entered into the brokenness, sin, pain, mud, and sweat of this world. Therefore, he comes to us for one purpose, that we can know his favor, that we can know his grace. And some 33 years later, when the body and blood, when his body and blood were given on the cross, it wasn't the body and blood of just another guy. It was the body and blood of God himself forgiving our sin and redeeming the world. Yes. So yes, the virgin birth is both true and necessary for our faith. And the third thing we see in the story is the simple response of faith. Response of faith. Now, if, you've, if you're familiar with Scripture from front to back, uh, throughout the Bible, God frequently calls people, ordinary people, to do some really hard, unusual things, things that seem impossible. And we see a whole range of responses to God's call to the impossible. For example, let me just tick through a few. God called a man named Noah to spend 100 years building a giant boat in the middle of the desert. And Noah did. God called Moses to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and to tell him, let my people go. And Moses did, but not before offering a whole bucket load of excuses about why he couldn't and why God had chosen the wrong guy. But he did. God called a young man named David to confront a giant enemy in battle. And David took five smooth stones and did. God called the prophet Jonah to go preach to the pagan Ninevites, and he ran the other way and ended up becoming fish food or in the belly of a whale. God calls a 13-year-old or so Jewish girl and says, I have decided to give you my favor, and you will bear my son, and you will be with child by the Holy Spirit, and he will save the world from their sins. Whoa. Think about that. Think about that. Mary's just received news that would shatter whatever dreams she might have had for her life. And she probably had dreams, but she was going to be an unwed teenage mother. There's a very real possibility that Joseph, her betrothed husband, will terminate that betrothal in great shame. Her family's reputation is going to be destroyed. She would be regarded as an adulteress by many for the rest of her life. Imagine how she could have responded. Imagine how you would have been tempted to respond or how, if this was your daughter, how you'd be tempted to respond. This is all too much. I'm just too young. I don't know how to raise a child. Please, please, please choose someone else for this impossible assignment. But we have a response, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. One, one verse. I think we see three beautiful things in her response. First, we see the response of humility. I am 
a servant, she says. The word in Greek is doule. It's the feminine form of the word for slave. Literally, I am the Lord's handmaid. Mary saw herself as the Lord's servant, not as the queen of heaven worthy of worship. Secondly, we see the response of faith. Let it be to me according to your word. This is the response of trust and surrender. And there is no faith. Let me say that again. There is no faith without trust in the goodness and favor of God and surrender to his word. Faith. And then later we see, if we kept reading, the Magnificat or the response of worship, Mary magnifies not herself. She magnifies the Lord, God, her Savior. So we all know the story. My guess is you walked in here today basically knowing the story. We recite it pretty much every year. But what about this story is for us? What a part of the story is about us? Well, I think what we see is God's favor. God's grace is for us. Now think about this just for a moment. Which is harder to do? It's an impossible question, but let me just ask it. Which is, in, is harder to do? Which requires more power or more authority? To cause a child to be conceived in the womb of a 13-year-old virgin or to forgive sin? To forgive your sin? My sin. To save someone like you? Which takes more power? Which takes more authority? You contribute nothing to your salvation. Do you know that? I contribute nothing to God's favor. God grants me his favor. That's the only way I know it. I can't earn it. I can't deserve it. I can't go get it on my own. Neither could Mary. This story is about God's favor alone. And God's favor is toward you. If you're a believer today, the Holy Spirit has already overshadowed you, has already filled you, and is even now working with the power of God in you. And so, what about the response of faith? Mary responded in humility and trust and obedience. So what might God be asking of you, asking from you, that requires the power of the Holy Spirit and the surrender of faith? God calls Doug and Carrie and their family to go to one of the most dangerous places on the face of the earth for a Christian and to start a school called, of all things, Hope School. Impossible. Impossible, many would say. But remarkable. So how is he calling you? How is he calling us? To receive his favor, maybe for the first time in faith, to surrender to his word, to obey in some way, to give, to serve, to pray, to reach out, to continue to pray for that prodigal who's far from God, you don't think there's any chance, to reconcile a relationship that's been broken forever, to attempt what might be called impossible. As the angel Gabriel said to a teenage Jewish girl so long ago, all this will happen. All this can happen because nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Let's bow in prayer. 
Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for this great familiar story that we retell and celebrate every year. But help us today to see that the story isn't just about a young woman from antiquity named Mary. The story is about you. It's about your favor poured out on her and through her to us. It's about the power of your Holy Spirit who brings new life and new hope to us. So may we respond as Mary did in humility, faith, worship, and obedience. And it's in your name, the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Receive now today's benediction. May we go now in the name of our Lord Jesus, who came, lived, died, rose again, that we might know the great favor of God. Amen. Have a great day.